you have a copy of the scripture, you go ahead and open that up to the book of Titus. Last week, Landon uh, started us in a series through the book of Titus, um, gave us a little bit of background into the book. Uh, just a little recap, as you look into the book of Titus, it's often, often lumped together with First and Second Timothy. And in First and Second Timothy, along with Titus, those three books are called the pastoral epistles. Paul is writing letters to Timothy. He's writing letters to uh, a letter to Titus uh, on people who were in the church, uh, church planners, and he's kind of giving them a blueprint of how a church is to operate, some things that they are to do to be a healthy church. Um, Titus is broken down into four sections. Uh, last week we talked about the, the intro, and then it's going to get into three different sections. One on right leadership, one on right doctrine, and one on right living. And this morning we're going to get started on the, on the right leadership part. As we looked at the introduction last week, Paul and Titus uh, had started these churches on the island of Crete. Uh, this is where that would have taken place. And as it is time for Paul to uh, leave, he is going to charge Titus with the task of putting the church into order and what that looked like and what that meant. And why? Because Crete was a very immoral culture. Um, I don't want to steal the thunder for next week's sermon, but Paul will say the, Cre uh, the Cretans are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons, just to give you a little heads up of what types of people may have been creeping into the church. And so Titus, no big deal. I want you to put the church into order. Um, these churches were established um, just like the churches today prone to have people to creep into the church, to negatively impact the church. Um, and Paul wanted these churches to uphold the gospel. He wanted them to stand firm on the gospel. He wanted them to be a light in the midst of darkness in their culture. And so usually when you see Paul write a letter, Corinthians, um, to the Ephesians, to the church in Ephesus, he usually starts with this greeting and how are you? Good to see you. I'm glad I'm going to be with you. I miss you. He doesn't here in Titus. He's going to get straight to the point. And so we're going to get straight to the point. That leads us to our big idea this morning. Putting the church into order requires elders. So Titus chapter 1, let's start reading in verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, a husband of one wife, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, uh, we come to you this morning and uh, as we open uh, the scripture, I pray that it, you would help it to make sense to us. When we think about this book uh, written thousands of years ago, 
to churches in a different culture. This passage is just as alive and relevant to us today as it was when it was given to Titus. Uh, So give us wisdom this morning. Uh, Help us to respond uh, to your words in obedience. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Springtime, spring break. Spring is always a rough time for me. There's always a few reasons for that. Number one, my wife, uh, this is her busy season. And as I say that, it's not a bad season. It's just different. It's a lot different. If you're married to an accountant, you understand being married to an accountant and how that is. It's just different. Uh, The number two big reason why spring is difficult for me is that there's no football. And I know some of you... Some of you may be very excited for March Madness. I'm really happy for you. And for those of you who might want to come up and argue with me that there, there's XFL on TV, that is not football. <clears throat> so, as I've mentioned in just about every sermon I've ever preached, uh, I either talk about Star Wars or football. Here we are again. Uh, I love college football. More than NFL, I love college football. We like to see the changes that are made in the offseason. We like to see what players the Cowboys are going to keep that will hamstring them for the next five years. Uh, We like to see which coaches that they kept that they should have fired. It's just an up and down roller coaster every year. This happens also in college football. You can see how the change of a coach can impact a team immediately. Hence, my Oklahoma Sooners this past season who went 6-7. and And while 6-7 and may be a decent season for some teams, it's not so much of a good season for my Sooners. And as my buddies and I have been talking about where are we going to take our rivalry game trip to this next year, one of the ideas that I threw out was let's go watch USC play at Colorado. And I know you're like... USC, Colorado, that is a weird combination. Why, Corey? Well, I'll tell you why. First of all, the Colorado uh, Buffaloes just hired Deion Sanders, Coach Prime, to come and be their coach. And you're like, okay, well, what's the big deal there? Well, Deion Sanders just so happened to leave a, a program of Jackson State, where he took a team who was 4-8 and eight two years ago, and he turned them into a team... That was 11 and 2 last year and won their conference. 4 and 8 to 11 and 2 in two years. That's a pretty big impact that a coach can make on a program. It was a big turnaround. And so, why USC? Well, I'm glad you asked. USC happens to be coached by the former head coach of my Oklahoma Sooners, uh, Stinkin' Riley. I mean, Lincoln Riley who just so happened to take the USC program that was 4-8 and under the direction of Coach Clay Helton and last year turned them into an 11-3 and team in one year. So why do I tell you those things? Because leadership matters. Who's leading the team matters. Who's coaching the team matters. If you look at the most successful teams uh, throughout uh, professional or collegiate leagues, For the most part, they have one common thread. They have someone who can coach. They have someone who players want to follow. They they have a coach that people want to be around. And as Paul is writing this letter to Titus, it is what he will start with with Titus. You have to put leadership 
within the church. You have to set up these elders within the church to put the church in order. And as the church was started, Paul is instructing Titus, first and foremost, before anything else, you have to lay the groundwork in the leadership that you place there. And so Paul addresses Titus, tells him to appoint elders within the church of Crete. And so first thing that we need to discuss this morning is why does the church need elders? Now, uh, yesterday I kind of had a, um, an epiphany moment there where, uh, here's your first blank, elders are responsible for discipleship. And as I say that, I wanted to change that to churches need discipleship. Either blank works. Uh, you we're all aiming towards the same point there. But churches need discipleship. Look at verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. Appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And so Paul is commanding Titus, you have to set these churches up with elders. And Paul saw the importance of elders for the spiritual well-being of the church. Paul had told them about Jesus. They had responded to the gospel. And now as they're a part of this church, he's saying, you need leadership. There's no discipleship structure there. And they needed uh, elders for making disciples. And recall what Jesus told his followers before he left uh, the earth in Matthew 28. He says, go therefore and make disciples. Okay, of all nations, baptizing them. And then it says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We need someone to make disciples. We need someone to teach them. Jesus as well, as Paul, wanted the church to be a place where not just people came to meet Jesus. Not just so that you could come and become a Christian. Walk an aisle, fill out a card, pray a prayer. You're good, you're in. No, you're to be discipled. And in return, those disciples are to be disciple makers. Um, Christian discipleship needs to happen in the local church. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. It's up on the screen. It says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to make disciples. We're supposed to teach the Bible, to make sure that those in the church know the Bible. So why does the church need elders? First, for the purpose of discipleship. Next, elders are responsible for, for setting an example, <clears throat> or the church needs an example. You know, one of the major, major reasons why the church needed elders was to be a shining example of what a Christian should look like. Many of the people in the church, like I said earlier, uh, they were lying, they were evil, they were lazy. Just some of the things that those were struggling with. When I think about our culture today, uh, there are many things that are fighting for our attention. Many things that are fighting for our attention within the church. It was no different in Paul's day. At 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul tells the church, uh, be imitators of me. I want you to think about that for a second. Paul is telling a church, be imitators of me. And in return, he's saying, as I imitate Jesus. Act like me as I act like Christ. And that should be the role of an elder. Uh, Hebrews 13. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way. And it says, imitate their faith. 
So an elder was to be an example to the church of how a Christian was supposed to act. So why did the church need elders? For discipleship to take place, for an example to follow. Charles Spurgeon says it like this. Churches without elders are like an army without officers. Those err greatly who despise order. So Titus was given a charge by Paul. Appoint elders to put the church into order. Next, who is qualified to be an elder? Number one, men who are above reproach. Now, before I get into the text, um, let me address a few things. First of all, key in on the first word that is in the blank. Men. Elders are to be men. Okay, why? That's kind of shallow-minded, isn't it, Corey? Kind of flies in the face of our culture today, isn't it, Corey? Uh, I know that this book that we are reading was written a long time ago, uh, but let me just... First and foremost, the word of the Lord does not change. Our culture may change, but God's word does not. And God throughout the entire Bible has been laying out his plan before his people on who were to be in places of leadership. And when Paul is addressing the church in Ephesus in regards to leadership roles, he does not ground his argument in culture because it has nothing to do with culture. As a matter of fact, he addresses the real reason men leading, and it's mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 2, 13, which points us all the way back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 2 says Adam was formed first, and Eve was formed next. Adam was formed from God, Eve was formed from man. And it goes on to say there in verse 14, Adam was not deceived, but Eve was deceived. And all the way back in Genesis, you have this order. And you can see the order also set up in the order of marriage. You also see it set up in the order of the church. God had created men to lead. And it's our role. Uh, It was that way from the beginning of time that men should lead. This is not saying in any way, shape, or form that women cannot have leadership roles within the church. But as far as the role of pastor, as far as the role of elder, that is specifically for a man. Now let's look at the rest. Men who are above reproach. Uh, Look at verse 6 again. If anyone is above reproach, a husband of one wife, his children are believers, and not open to the charge of the Bakri insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. It's so important here that Paul bookends it. He says it twice. A man must be above reproach. Um, one of the interpretations of above reproach means that one who, it's one who is blameless. Notice that this phrase does not mean sinless. Because if it was sinless, it would disqualify every single one of us. Um, Kent Hughes says it like this. I love this. Note that among the Christian leadership qualifications... There's no mountains to climb, no alligators to wrestle, no pilgrimages to make, no prophecies to utter, no ancient manuscript to decode, no visions to conjure, no tortures to endure, no miracles to perform. The standard for Christian leadership strictly relate to one's example before others. And that's what an elder is supposed to be. It's all about their character. It's about who they are. Are they perfect? Absolutely not. Uh, Are they sinless? No. 
But you see in them a trajectory in their life that seeks to honor the Lord in public, seeks to honor the Lord in their work, at home, in private. It's a man who no one can accuse of living a double lifestyle. Next, who is qualified to be an elder? Uh, First one is men who lead their families well. A husband of one wife. Uh, Let's talk about that for a second. Because the the phrase literally means, uh, it's translated a one-woman man. There to be a one-woman man. Again, without getting into the weeds too much, because you could do a four-part series on this verse right here alone. Um, let's get the easy, way, the easy parts out of the way first. Paul is not disqualifying men who are single or widowed. Okay? He's not disqualifying those who are single or widowed. Paul was never married. Titus was probably not married. Uh, and that did not disqualify these men. They were single. Uh, does, does not disqualify someone who has been widowed. Another obvious conclusion to address is the practice of polygamy. Okay? Uh, it could not be a man or anyone who practiced having multiple wives. If you did that, it would disqualify you. And a lot of people believe that that's what this text means. Obviously, you cannot have more than one wife. You're a one-woman man. Now, what about divorce? This is where it becomes less clear. Um, because if you break... You can actually break the divorce argument into two parts. First of all, uh, did that divorce happen biblically or unbiblically? You could go down that path and you could chase that rabbit. Uh, One could also argue about whether or not the divorce happened before the person became a believer. Um, Again, this gets cloudy and arguments are abounding on both sides of the fence on whether or not a divorced person should be an elder. Um, In my opinion, uh, which is the opinion of many of the commentaries that I wrote, I read this week, I did not write them. Uh, And if I wrote one, I definitely wouldn't read it, I promise. Uh, Someone who has been divorced should probably not be an elder in the church. Uh, However, as Daniel Aiken references uh, to and I seem to understand, to extend grace and give room for discernment uh, in extremes, extremely specific cases, I also agree. So, in other words, a divorced person should probably not be an elder. But if the situation being extremely specific were to come up and the church affirm that, do I think that could happen? Possibly. But probably I don't think that that needs to take place. That's my opinion again. And let me just paraphrase with this. This does not qualify a man from serving within the church. Maybe disqualifies a man from being an elder, but it definitely does not qualify a man from serving in the church. Bottom line, an elder should be a man who is in love with, committed to, and devoted to one woman, and that woman is to be his wife. So a husband of one wife. What about his children? The text says his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. So his children are well behaved, uh, are believers. Can be translated, his children are faithful. Okay? The argument uh, with this word believers is that when we think of I'm a believer, that means you believe in Jesus, that means you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, and that you are a Christian. 
Uh, as we read the Bible and as we study Scripture, we have to understand that there's not a father in the world who can make their child become a Christian. There's not. No father can determine whether or not his child will follow Jesus or not. And now, you can certainly obey the Lord and teach them diligently the way that the Lord has commanded you to do. You can follow the Lord in obedience to teach your children the Bible. You can follow the Lord diligently in, in bringing your children to church and raising them up in a home that would give them the best, option, or the best chance to follow Jesus. But it's the Lord who gives salvation to someone, not us. Uh, a father can ensure that his children act in a faithful way. Also, the parallel verse in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 and 5 says, He must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how can he care for God's church? So their children are to be faithful. Their children are to be submissive. This means that their children are well behaved. Uh, yes, at home. Yes, in all areas of life. Yes, at school. Yes, at church. Um, and so, I'm not saying that these children are perfect. Um, we all know that there's not a child in the world that is perfect, right? Uh, but their children are well behaved. And as First Timothy reminds us, if they can't manage their home, then they're not fit to lead the church. They're not fit to lead. They're not fit to lead the church. So elders must lead their families well. Next, they are men who are self-controlled. In verses 7 and 8, it's going to get into some things that elders are not to be and some things that elders should be. So let's look at the, the not list. And Paul lays out these qualifications for an elder. Let's look at this, uh, things that an elder should not be. First of all, they should not be arrogant. Literally translated, pleasing himself. Someone who's so concerned with themselves and what is best for them. That type of person should not be an elder. Quick-tempered. Pretty self-explanatory. Shouldn't be someone with a short fuse. Losing their temper is not the norm. A drunkard. When I studied this one, uh, I would have thought that this would have only meant um, alcohol. But it literally, when you translate it, it means anything that would help make you lose your mind. So any type of substance abuse. They are not to be uh, in that role. Violent. Older uh, translations of this word literally would mean that they wouldn't be a striker. Uh, again, Landon has made this comment multiple times. Uh, we have to check ourselves on 42nd Street. Just avoid 42nd Street. It's all good. Um, but an elder should not be someone who would phys cause physical harm to someone or to strike them verbally, both physically or verbally. Wouldn't be someone who uh, would, that would not be the characteristics of an, el of, of an elder. Uh, greedy for gain. An elder shouldn't be dishonest. Shouldn't be who we are. These are all things that an elder should not be known for. Uh, this doesn't mean that an elder hasn't failed in some, one of these areas. Again, uh, an elder should not be controlled by pride or anger, not controlled by desire for drink, not desire for dominance, a desire for wealth. This should not be the traje trajectory of an elder's life. Now let's take a some, look at some of these qualities that we should be known for. First of all, hospitable. Someone who's 
you know, very open to open their home to someone. The total opposite of arrogant. Someone who uh, is welcoming to others. A lover of good. An elder should be known by and encouraging good things. Self-controlled. The opposite of uh, violent, right? Someone who uh, is... Someone who is not violent or quick-tempered, but they have self-control in their life. That is what that means. Now, the next three are a little different. Let's check them out. First of all, it says that an elder should be upright. Meaning that they should live according to the Word of God. They should live in a, an upright life. Next is holy, meaning committed uh, to a life of godliness. Um, they are devoted to the Lord. They are devoted to what pleases the Lord. Disciplined. Uh, this term here is a, is a athletic term, meaning that they uh, buffet their bodies in order to do something that needs to be done. Uh, it would be some someone who is disciplined to study God's word, to spend time with the Lord in prayer, to uh, bring their family to church, growing in the Lord. This is something that they're known by. They're disciplined by it. It's something that's a part of who they naturally are. That is who an elder should be, upright, holy, and disciplined. Now, with these last three that we talked about, uh, I know you look at those terms and you're like, well, these are personal growth things. But don't miss that Paul is lumping them together with actions that should be displayed in an elder. I would go so far as to say that this is ultimately an example for all of us to follow within the church. All of us should strive to be upright. All of us should all uh, strive to be holy and disciplined. We should strive to be hospitable, a lover of good and self-controlled. This is an example for the church. And elders should be a shining example of what it looks like to walk in obedience in those things. And so uh, Paul is telling Titus, this is the type of men that you should pick to lead the church. And this leads perfectly into our next point. What does an elder do? Number one, elders hold fast to the faith once delivered to the saints. Verse 9, he says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound, in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. You know, an elder is to be devoted to and... Uh, Devoted to the Word of God, devoted to studying the Word of God, and devoted to teaching the Word of God. And we know that these uh, other people were creeping into the church and causing a lot of confusion. And Paul is telling Titus, you have to set up godly leaders who will stand firm on the Word of God. Be able to teach the Word of God the way it is, and be able to hear the Word of God. And when it's not lined up correctly with the Bible to be able to recognize it and to uh, rebuke it in an instant. Uh, a life of perfect obedience to the Father. He, he, you know, we believe these things, that uh, God sent Jesus to die a death for us. He sent him to live a life for us that we couldn't live. He sent us to die the death that we deserved. Uh, he lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father. And he died on the cross taking our sin and taking our... And, and, and he found it complete joy to do that for us. And we stand firm on those things. Uh, and so that is what an elder is supposed to hold tightly to. 
hold tightly to the gospel, be able to teach the gospel, to be able to uh, rebuke it when someone doesn't give a right uh, description of the gospel. And the Bible is clear. Elders are to hold fast to the truth of God's word and to stand firm on that truth and to respond how? In obedience to the word of God. They live it out. Why? Because elders are appointed to teach sound doctrine and to rebuke false teaching. I think this is really the heart of what Paul is trying to get Titus to do. Teaching the word of God. Elders must be able to teach the word of God. This phrase, sound doctrine, it appears four times in the New Testament. Twice it is in Titus, and the other two are in the pastoral epistles and the Timothys. And when this phrase, sound doctrine, is used, it goes without saying that it's the, op- the opposite can be true as well. That people can teach a false doctrine. Paul saw this in his day. We see this in our day as well. We have people creep into the church all the time who will try to teach a gospel that is not uh, a true gospel. And we have to be able to recognize that. And we have to be able to defend against that. Uh, we are... We should be able to see that false teaching and defend against it. In a culture where you hear, uh, you can hear just about anything that you want to hear with just a few clicks. Uh, you can hear just about any type of message that you want to hear. Messages that will tickle our ears. Messages that will make us feel good about ourselves. Um, and that's very dangerous. And we need elders to be able to see things like that and teach against things like that. Um, Romans 16 reminds us, Paul reminds us uh, that I appeal to you brothers to watch out for those who would cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. He says, avoid them, stay away from them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus, our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery uh, they devise uh, their hearts They deceive the hearts of the naive, excuse me. Elders are tasked with being able to teach sound doctrine. But elders should also be tasked with refuting uh, false doctrine. And this takes uh, being a student of the word. And that's what an elder should be, a student of the word. Should be, uh, and this is a very heavy responsibility. Because in Colossians 1, it tells us, We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. It's an elder's job to be able to grow the church into maturity in Christ. So how should we respond as a church? Uh, First of all, commit to pray for your elders. Commit to pray for your elders. Um, These are men that God has um, called to lead the church. And as leaders within the church, I beg and plead with you to lift us up in prayer. We aren't perfect. We struggle the same as anyone else. Will you commit to pray for your elders? I promise you, you will never meet an elder that would say, "Ah, you know what, I think we're good. I don't think we need any prayer right now. I think we're all right. Um, You know, we have one young man that's sitting with us right now to become an elder. Um, And can I just tell you, church, it's encouraging to think that uh, this is not something that he takes lightly, and it's not something that we take lightly. It's not something that, um, it, it definitely carries a weight to it. And it's not something that uh, we take lightly, and it's not a charge that is meant for everyone. Um, 
Last thing I want to encourage you with is your own personal walk. As you think about your walk as a Christian, as a Christ follower, when you think about the qualifications of being an elder, I think there is something that all of us, that's something that all of us should strive after. Ultimately, when we think about an elder being an example for the church, we are supposed to follow that example. I love the word of God. I love the church. I love serving the church. All of those things should be true in a church member's life. Uh, I'll also say this. Um, we as elders are not going to be here forever. We're not. I mean, Landon told the church this Wednesday night that it was my 50th birthday. And while I am not 50, I will say I am getting close. Uh, we're not going to be here forever. And there needs to be uh, men within the church who meet these qualifications, who have a desire to follow Jesus, to become the next elders at Emmanuel Baptist Church. The church needs it. A healthy church needs elders to lead. And some of you in the chairs right now may be one of those men. I know you're sitting there back there thinking, Corey, that's, that's deep. And that's not even for me. One of our elders... Jason, I asked him if I could share this. He joined the church in 2014. And if you would have asked him, not even 10 years ago, in nine years, would you see yourself as the college pastor and an elder and preaching on a Sunday morning? He'd be like, you are crazy. You're nuts. There's no way. But that's what God does. He uses us. He grows us. He changes our hearts. He draws us to himself. He transforms us and he uses us. And regardless of whether you would be an elder or not, regardless of whether you meet the qualifications to be an elder or not, God is drawing you. He wants to use you within the church. And we should strive to live out these things, the qualifications of an elder. We should do that. If you are here this morning... And you would say, I don't even have a personal relationship with Jesus. Uh, one of our pastors would love to talk with you about that after our service this morning. Uh, and so why do we do it? I'll end with this quote by Daniel Aiken. He says, why do elders do it? For the glory of God and for the good of his people. An elder's life will match his belief. And what he believes will connect how he lives. And, how, uh, and, and then he will be a leader worth trusting. And says, then he will be a leader worth following. Let's pray this morning.